Well, praise the Lord. We are uh, now beginning our journey preaching and teaching through the gospel of Mark. So if you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to get there in just a little bit. But it's so important that we as a church know who Christ is. Now, the Gospels of the Bible, we know them as uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. We know that John was written later uh, in, the, in the first century. We know that. At least there's good evidence pointing toward that. There's a great debate on when the other Gospels were written exactly and which one came first. And that's really the, the point of contention is which Gospel came first. And uh, for a long time it was popular to say that Mark came first. And um, there's been other hypotheses and people arguing for Matthew coming first and so that there's this order of of Matthew and then the other Gospels come out of that. We know that there's a large portion that's written in Mark in both Matthew and Luke, and so there are those who argue for, for Mark coming first in the whole series of Gospels. But one of the things that we need to understand as we even look at this book and as we begin to think about it is that those questions as far as which Gospel came first don't really matter. In fact, uh, we, we could sit here and we could debate all day long, and that's what scholars do. They try to figure out which one came first, and it seems like there's evidence for this one, and then another scholar comes out and says, no, there's evidence for this one being written. Even with the dating of books, uh, it seems like this book was written perhaps between the mid-50s and very early 60s of the first, uh, first century, and that's probably correct. But there are going to be a lot of surprises in heaven. And it's amazing to think about what is going to take place in heaven as many people who thought they knew exactly the answers to all of these kind of gray area questions are thoroughly surprised. And it's also uh, possible to get off of track and to begin to think about those kind of questions as if they're the main questions when they're good questions and they're questions that we should consider, but they're not the priority in what we should be thinking about and considering. What we need to be thinking about and considering as we go through these books of the Bible is first of all that we continue to embrace the whole message of the Bible, all 66 books, as the Word of God. That's the key. That all of these books are inspired. All of these books are inerrant. That is, they come without any falsehood. Everything that these books say are absolutely 100% true. And so when we come to any book in the Bible, we're not just studying a book and saying, well, isn't this a nice book like, like some, some book by uh, some other famous scholar, famous teacher. But we are coming to this book and we are saying that there is something, there is something very unique about it. When we read it, even though the text of these New Testament pages are, are 2,000 years old, we look at it and we feel its freshness. In a conversation recently, uh, I was talking to someone about the fact that you can open up a lot of books of history and it's like you're blowing the dust off of them, you know? And you look, at the, you look at the pages and you look at the words and you can tell right away it's an old book and it's a book that has been written by people many, many years ago. When you open up the Bible, you recognize that it's a book that was written, written many years ago. But there's a freshness to it. There's a difference to it. Because the scripture clearly tells us that the words in this book are alive. The words in this book are active. The Bible tells us that the words in this book are sharper than any two-edged sword. The words in this book are living words that have literally been breathed out by God the Holy Spirit. 
And so if we ever want to understand what this is, we need to come to this book with a humility that says, when we open up this book, we're not trying to master it ourselves, but rather we're trying to be mastered by it because it is the word of God. Now, interestingly, when we come to this book, we notice if you look at chapter one there, it says the gospel according to Mark. That's a title that was given very early. And uh, the question is, who is, who is Mark? We know that Mark was an early believer, and we know that he was an associate of the apostle Peter. In fact, there have been those who have said that this really is the gospel according to the apostle Peter, or the gospel according to Peter, because Mark was his associate. Mark was not a disciple in the sense of an apostle. He was a disciple in the sense of a follower of Christ, but he was not one of the 12. There's been some who have guessed that maybe he was part of the early 70 disciples, although that seems highly unlikely. But this was a person who resided in Israel and was saved, and he was saved probably under the ministry of Peter. And so he was a person who traveled with Peter, who worked with him, who constantly heard the gospel of Jesus Christ through Peter. And so there was a certain point where he wrote down a message, which we now have in this book called the Gospel of Mark. And history tells us, the history of the church tells us, that it was Mark who was an associate of the Apostle Peter who wrote this. Eusebius, who was the first early church historian, he wrote this. He said, Mark was the interpreter of Peter and wrote down accurately whatever he recalled. So you can see Mark there writing as Peter is saying, now write this. And uh, Jesus looked like this. And uh, Jesus talked like this. Now, we don't get a, a visible picture from Mark, but we get a very accurate picture of who Jesus Christ was. In fact, we can feel the emotions of Christ in this book. Uh, this book is a, is a book of action. It's a book geared for speed to go through the life of Jesus very quickly. And so we, we know from church history that Mark, who was the interpreter of Peter according to Eusebius, uh, wrote down accurately whatever he recalled. Jerome, another church father, wrote this, Paul then had Titus for his interpreter, and also St. Peter had Mark, whose gospel was composed by him, writing at Peter's dictation. And so Jerome also comes along, we could read from other church fathers who say the same thing, that this person, this follower of Christ named Mark, and we're going to see also called uh, John Mark, was the person who wrote down this gospel, and he wrote it down as he was listening to Peter. There are those who say that uh, he wrote this gospel while he was in the city of Rome, and that it's geared for people like you and me. Most of us here are not Jewish. Uh, there might be some people who are Jewish, and if you are Jewish in this church, we honor you. But most of us are Gentiles, and if you've ever wondered what a Gentile means, it simply means a person who is not Jewish. It has nothing to do with whether you're white or black or yellow-colored or, or reddish in your skin. It simply has to do with the fact that you're a non-Jew. And so we have those who are Jews, according to the scriptures, and we have those who are Gentiles. And so if you say to yourself, well, I'm not a Jewish person, then you are a Gentile. And this book is geared toward us listening and really thinking about who Jesus Christ is. And that's something that we need to do. We need to really sit down and understand that this man named Jesus Christ is not just any normal religious teacher that this man is a man who entered into history 2,000 years ago who was fully man, and Mark centers upon that in this gospel. Over and over again, we get the fact, we get the understanding that Jesus Christ is not only fully God, but we also get the clear picture, the clear indication, the clear teaching that Jesus Christ is also fully human, completely human. 
And he wants us to understand that because there were early heretics, there were early teachers who came and said, well, Jesus was God, but he wasn't really human. He appeared to be human, or he appeared to kind of look like a human, but he wasn't truly human. Perhaps he was from outer space. No, I don't, I don't think they said that. Of course, today we would get theories like that. In fact, we have people that believe that we come from outer space. But with this gospel, Mark is coming to us and he is telling us that Jesus Christ is fully human and he's the suffering servant. And we need to feel the fact that Jesus Christ was really real. I mean, we, need to, we need to understand that that's true. There, there are many people walking around today who do not even think much about Jesus Christ. They're not thinking much about God. They do not realize the importance of 2,000 years ago someone came into history was so important in history that he actually split the timeline between A.D. and B.C. And we oftentimes walk around in this culture, in this world, without really thinking about the importance of who Jesus Christ really is. And in this book, there's a call to follow him. And when we come into this sanctuary, when we come into this church, the aim is that we recognize that Jesus Christ is the living Lord who's alive today, who doesn't just call us to assent to certain facts, but he's actually called us in reality, in real truth, in real life, to lay our lives down as a disciple and say, Jesus Christ, I'm going to follow you with my life. That's the question that he asks every person today. Not, do you think Jesus is a, a good man? Not, do you just think that he's a prophet? Not, do you just think of him as the guy that we talk about at church? But listen, has he invaded your life in such a way that Jesus Christ is the most important person in your life? He is so important that you have been willing to lay down everything at the expense and at the cost of saying, I'll follow you, I'll follow you. Jesus is calling, Jesus is calling real disciples. Jesus is calling people who are in love with Jesus on Sunday. He's calling people who are in love with Jesus on Monday. He's calling people who want to pray and want to follow him and want to love him and read about him and know him in the power of the Holy Spirit on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. This is not, hear, hear, hear it out very carefully, this is not about becoming religious. If you have thought that being a Christian is giving church a try, you have missed out completely. This group here gathered here this morning the prayer is that we are a group of people who are abandoned to Jesus Christ and who say that no matter where we go in this life, no matter what we do in this life, that our life has been laid down imperfectly as it is, that our life has been laid down to say, Lord, we surrender and we follow you regardless of the cost. Lord, we just want you. We want you. And if there's anything that Mark and uh, Peter behind him is trying to get to us, and that is to say, are you really willing to lay down your life? Are you this morning? Are you willing to lay down your life for Christ? It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you friends. It's going to cost uh, you family. It's going to cost you perhaps a job. It's going to cost you in some way. But listen carefully. There is nothing, there is nothing greater 
There is nothing better. There is nothing more joy-giving. There is nothing more worth it in this life than not knowing about Christ, but knowing Christ. And there are some of us who have been called to follow him. There are some of us who have been called. Jesus said many are called, right? Outwardly called, but few. Few are what? Few are chosen. And it's your responsibility to make a decision this morning and say, Jesus, either you are going to be the one who disciples me, I'm going to be your disciple, or I'm going to continue to live my life as I please Without your lordship in my life, I'm going to continue to live my life the way I want to live it and abandon his call. And so this book is a call to see Jesus Christ as a man. This book is a a call to see him as the Lord who is the one who calls us to discipleship. Now it's interesting in scripture we see many different references to this man named Mark. In fact, if you'll flip with me to Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, that's where we'll start in looking at who he is in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, verse 12. Says this, Acts chapter 12, verse 12 says this, and when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. Now here it is. Mary is the mother of John. Now, this is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is another Mary. She's the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So he had two names. So sometimes he was called John, and sometimes he was called Mark. Hey, John or Mark or whatever your name is, come on over here. Two names. In fact, he's been commonly called uh, John Mark. And so if you're ever ever confused, you say, well, I thought that's the gospel of Mark, and yet we come to this, and it says his name is also John. Now you know why, because he evidently had two different names and uh, two different official names. These aren't like nicknames, and they were, many of them were there gathered together, and they were praying. If you go down to verse 25, we see that this person was uh, a missionary that he actually worked not only closely with Peter, as we'll see, but originally he worked closely with Barnabas, who was a relative of his. In fact, we don't have time to flip there, but uh, Colossians chapter 4 tells us that John Mark was a cousin to Barnabas. Verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name, whose other name was Mark. Now, if you flip over to chapter 15, chapter 15, there arose a a contention, a problem between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. He had been traveling with them in verse 36 in Acts chapter 15, verse 36, and it says this, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas, again, who's related to John Mark, wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So evidently, along the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas, John Mark said, this is getting to be too much. And so he says, I'm taking off, and he leaves them. And that really stuck with Paul, because later Barnabas says, hey, let's take him again on another journey. And Paul says, I'm not taking a guy who deserted us, who who left. And Barnabas, you can tell he's related to him. He's going, hey, but, you know, let's restore him. We can bring him back with us. Paul says no. And, of course, Paul then goes on to travel. Primarily, we see in the book of Acts with Silas. You have Paul and Silas, and then you have John Mark going with Barnabas. But it's interesting. We do see the heart of Paul because later on there does seem to be some kind of restoration. We could look at other scriptures. But let's go to 2 Timothy 
There seems to be some kind of restoration between he and Paul, even though he had um, given up on Paul and Barnabas at one point. If you go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul is speaking. Again, remember that Paul is writing this, this book that we call 2 Timothy. He says, Luke alone is with me. But notice what he says next. Now, this is after he had been deserted. This is after he had denied traveling with Mark again. Notice what he says. Paul says this, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. So at some point, something had happened where Mark had deserted Barnabas and he had deserted Paul, but at some point there was a reconciliation and Paul came around to seeing that John Mark was absolutely useful after all and said, hey, why don't you bring him along with him? with you because he is, he's useful to me in, in the ministry. It's neat how in the Lord's kindness, in the Lord's providence, how oftentimes even as believers, we fall and we fail, don't we? I mean, even as believers, we, we mess up. And sometimes there's friction even between Christians. And if you thought that just joining a church or becoming a part of a, a church would just be a, this place where there's no problems, no friction, everybody just agrees all the time and thinks the same way, that's just not the case. But if there's anything that this teaches us, it's this, you work through it. You work through it. Yeah, there's problems. The yeah, others people say, I don't want to join that church or this church or whatever church because all they are is a bunch of hypocrites in there. If there's anything we get, it's this. We're a group of sinners who have been saved by grace. And Christians are not people who are perfect. There are people who recognize over and over again the wonderful grace of God in their life. That no matter what we do in our life, no matter how bad it is, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That what we need to press into, what we should be coming into Sunday morning church every Sunday looking for is a word from God that gives grace to us because we're people who desperately need grace. We need to feel the acceptance again of God that he loves us, he forgives us, he has already purchased us because of what he did on the cross. And so he tells us again and again, come to me. Reconcile to me again. He's here. And we say, what? You still love me? You still care about me after what was done? Yes, I still do. And this is how we're to be to one another then no matter what happens in this life, we don't just give up. We may for a season, but then we come back to our senses and say, wait a second, this is my brother or sister in Christ. And so we begin to believe the best and see the best and think the best in others. And so we see this here in the story of the person, the narrative of the person who wrote this book, who is no doubtedly, John Mark, the man with two names. Now, if you go back to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, he begins this in chapter 1. We're going to look at uh, verses uh, 1 through uh, 3 this morning. And he tells us here in Mark chapter 1, the beginning. Now, some have noticed that this book obviously begins with the beginning, possibly reference, referencing uh, the beginning of creation, in the beginning. In fact, uh, if you go over to John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And now we have another reference here to the beginning. 
But this is not the beginning of creation. That's not what he's talking about here. And neither is he talking really about the beginning of the gospel, technically, because the gospel was even proclaimed in the Old Testament. In fact, we've noticed that as we've looked at books like Isaiah, which some have called the fifth gospel. But this isn't necessarily or technically the beginning of the gospel because the gospel has been preached. The gospel of promises and grace has been preached even in the Old Testament. But this is the arrival of the ministry and the fulfillment of all those promises. Because now it says here in verse 1 that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of his ministry and a narrative about his life, his death, his resurrection. So this is all about Jesus. There is no sweeter name than the name of Jesus. Interestingly, in the, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew name for Jesus is Joshua. And out of all of the names that Jesus could have been called and named, God picked the name Joshua for his son. Something to think about. If you were to name him a certain name, what would you have named the son of the father of God? And uh, some would say, well, we would name him maybe perhaps Abraham. Others might say perhaps we would name him Moses. But the Lord picked Joshua. And it comes to us across in the Greek as Jesus. Jesus. There's no more precious name in this world than the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, demons flee. At the name of a whispered Jesus, prayers are heard. At the name of Jesus, sick people are healed. At the name of Jesus, people are delivered from oppression and from sin. At the name of Jesus, the Bible says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? He's Lord. There is no name like the name of Jesus. And there's going to come a point in your life where all you're going to be able to get out on your tongue is not a curse word as it's become. But all you're going to be able to get out is Jesus. Jesus. And the Bible tells us that this was his name. And this person is the most unique person that has ever entered the drama of history, and he's sent here, and the Bible says his name is Jesus. Notice this, and now he says the gospel of Jesus, but it also says Jesus Christ. Now, if we don't know any better, we might think that that's his first and his last name. Some people might think that, that his first name was Jesus and his last name was, was Christ, but that's not the case. The word Christ means anointed one or Messiah. And so what this is saying is this is telling us who Jesus is, that he's the anointed one. He's the Messiah who has been predicted in the Old Testament, the deliverer is now here the one who had been talked about for centuries, the one who had been prophesied even to Adam and Eve in the very beginning, that one would come who would crush the serpent's head, the one who had been prophesied through Abraham and through Moses and then through all of the prophets and all of the kings and all of the priests in the Old Testament, he was here. This is the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who was promised. But he's not just called Jesus Christ here. Mark is very clear to tell us that this is not just a man, even though the emphasis is going to be clearly on the fact that he is 
a man. But the scripture here tells us clearly that he's also the son of God. That he's fully man and that he's also God. We can say that Jesus Christ is the son of God and we can also say that Jesus Christ is God the son. That is that there's one God but there's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ, this one who had no beginning and has no end, the Bible says, stepped down into history to become a person. And that's why we call him Jesus. He's uh, given a name that we just talked about. But Mark wants us also to be extremely clear here that this person is also the Son of God. In fact, he references this a number of times. Look down at verse 10. And when he came up out of the water... He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. You see it, the Father's talking. Talking about the Son, who? The Son of God. Go over to chapter 9, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 7. And the cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved Son. There it is again. So we have him in the beginning being proclaimed as the Son of God. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. In the middle of the book, we have him being proclaimed as the Son of God. This is the Son of God. He's the Son of God in the beginning of the book. He's the Son of God in the middle of the book. And if you go toward the end of chapter 15, Mark chapter 15, we see it again very clearly. Mark chapter 15, verse 39, Mark chapter 15, verse 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son, the son of God. So Mark tells us, this is going to be the gospel, meaning good news. meaning an announcement. Great tidings. This is joyful tidings, is what he's saying. This is a book about joy. This is a book about promises. This is not a book uh, telling us uh, just things about ourselves. But this is a book telling us about the one who did things for us. On our behalf, this is Jesus Christ. This is a book, the gospel of good news. Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of God. Now he tells us that before Jesus steps onto the scene, that there's going to come one who's actually going to prepare his way. There's going to come a messenger who's actually going to prepare the way of Jesus. And as we think about this, uh, the question might arise in our mind, why? Why does Jesus need anyone to prepare his, his way? Why didn't he just uh, step onto the scene? Hey, I'm, I'm God, my name's Jesus, I'm the anointed one. But God always uses people, doesn't he, in his unfolding plan. He always uses us. In fact, every time in the Old Testament when God was about to act in great power, he would always send someone to warn people and say, hey, I'm about to act. Something's about to happen. If you think about the people during Noah's day, Noah, a prophetic figure, said, hey, hey folks, uh, the world's about to be flooded. What was he doing? He was preparing the people to understand that there was going to come a, a flood. We could use many other examples, but you look at Jonah with, with Nineveh, or the countless prophets who went to Israel and said, hey, God's about to act. God always uses people. He always sends messengers. He has always sent prophets. 
with his message to prepare the people for what he's about to do. And that's exactly what he's doing here with this unnamed messenger. In fact, it's, it's interesting here in the first three verses, this messenger isn't even named. He becomes named, but it shows the humility of this messenger, and it also shows the focus of God. That the focus of God in this book, as with every other book in the entire canon of Scripture, is on the only hero of Scripture, and that's on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, he says this in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Interestingly, here, instead of quoting Isaiah right away, he actually quotes Malachi, which we're going to get to in just a second. He quotes Malachi here in verse 2, and then gets to Isaiah in verse 3. But it seems that Isaiah here is the prominent figure, and perhaps that's why Mark says Isaiah instead of saying according to Malachi and Isaiah. But he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The Father here is talking about the Son, that the Son is coming into this world. But before he comes, there's going to come one who's going to prepare his way. And if you go back to Malachi chapter 3, we need to look at this because it's right here in the text. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger. This is what Mark is quoting in the New Testament in his gospel. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. He's talking about this person who's not the Messiah but will prepare the way for the Messiah to come. And then all of a sudden he says this, and uh, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, speaking of Christ there, so you have a different messenger in the first part, that is this messenger who's going to prepare the way of Christ. Then you have this verse talking about Christ, the Lord, it was the messenger of the covenant. By the way, that's the new covenant. In whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, it's interesting. In Mark 1 here, it says, I send my messenger. This is a messenger from God. This is a messenger who loves the word of God and who knows God. Whoever this messenger is, this is a true prophet. This is a true messenger. And oh, how refreshing it is to know that God still sends true messengers. Messengers who truly love the word of God, especially after our continuous study of those who are constantly teaching against the word of God. False teachers, teachers who are teaching heretical things, teachers who are leading the sheep astray, teachers who are de delighting in goats. To come to this, and there's this refreshment here that says, this messenger is actually sent by God. There are messengers who are not sent by God. If you go back to Jeremiah chapter 23, Jeremiah chapter 23, go in your Old Testament to Isaiah, and then... Uh, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 23, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 21, God is speaking, he says, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. He's talking about false prophets here. I did not speak to them, and yet they prophesied. Look at verse 32, behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness. When I did not send them or charge them, so they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. 
But this messenger, this messenger that's being sent by the Lord to prepare the way of Christ is a true messenger, one who loves the scriptures. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. This is exactly what this messenger believed, and we're going to look at this text in just a moment, but Isaiah chapter 40, this messenger believed this and preached this in verse 6. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6 says, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? This is the messenger who prepares the way of the Lord. He says this, all flesh is grass. He says, everybody is passing away and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The, gr the grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but what does he delight in? But the word of our God. But the word of our God will stand or stands forever. There's a need for true messengers. There's a need for true messengers. People who do not come with their own message, preaching their own content, but people are so in love with the scriptures that they are willing to say, yes, this is what I'm going to preach. Who have been sent, who have been commissioned by the Lord. And it's not just preachers in the sense of being a pastor. But every believer who knows Christ has been commissioned to be a messenger. And this is a messenger who arrests the attention of Israel. Look at verse 3 of Mark 1. He prepares the way there in verse 2. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's preparing the people. At this point, Israel, you would think after hundreds of years of having the prophets tell them the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. All of a sudden, this messenger comes and he says, wake up. It's time to hear. He's actually here. The, the appointed time is now. It's not hundreds of years off. There were many who were slumbering. Instead of Israel sitting there just waiting, anticipating the Messiah, saying he's coming, he's coming, many had fallen asleep. Many had given in to a life of sin. And this one comes and he says, look, it's time to wake up. We looked at last week at this darkness that Israel was in. And they were in that darkness for hundreds of years. And so God always sends his messenger, one who will come to say, time to get up. Time to get out of spiritual bed. He's about to come onto the scene. There were some who were waiting. There were some, but not many. Luke chapter 2, go over to Luke chapter 2, verse 25. We see that there were a number of people. There's always a faithful group within Israel who was waiting. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. There he is, waiting. He's waiting for the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. If you go over to verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna. And she's also waiting in verse 37. It says, as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So there were some. There were some anticipating but Israel for the most part predominantly had fallen asleep and so this messenger comes and he cries aloud there's an earnestness in his voice he's calling the people and saying the time is now get ready the Messiah Jesus Christ is about to enter the arena and here they are in the wilderness. 
Instead of being in the middle of the city, this messenger is in the wilderness, barren, uninhabited. People aren't living there, but there he is out there preaching the Messiah is coming right now. Not like three years from now, but now. And many of the people are coming to him in the wilderness. And I can't help but think as we talk about the wilderness that God prepares people in the barren land. God could have done it a lot differently. But as the people were hearing this messenger, they're like, well, where is he preaching at? Is he down by the temple? No, he's out in the wilderness, out by the, the shrubs in that little stream. God often prepares people by taking them into the wilderness first. You see this over and over again, this theme in Scripture where God works, but he doesn't work in the way that we think he works. He works actually in the opposite way. And so the way that he works here is he sends his messenger who's preparing the way of Christ, waking the people up, saying, come on, he's coming, he's about to enter the stage. But it's done in the wilderness where people are, where people are not thinking he's going to be in this barren land. And this is exactly how he still works today. The Lord always, listen carefully, and I know it's getting warm in here. The Lord always works by taking his servants through the wilderness. If you think that becoming a Christian is just God saves you, and then all of a sudden it's just this wonderful time, God says to person after person after person, the way that I'm going to sanctify you, the way that I'm going to prepare you for what you're going to do, the way that I'm going to use you is by first taking you into the wilderness where I work, into the barren place where I am, into the place where no one else sees God at work, but you see it. And perhaps today you're sitting there in a time where you're going, it's wilderness in my life. It's wilderness. I thought it was going to be a lot different. I mean, I know God provides for all my needs, but financially it's tough. The economy's tough. Family life is tough. Everything's tough. And God says, yeah, I'm using this in your life. It's been ordained by me because the only way that I take people on the path that I take them, it always involves taking them through a wilderness period in their life. This is why Jesus said over and over again, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this is why Christians, as we saw last week, are signposts to the rest of the world. Because when you go through your wilderness time, it's not easy, but you keep saying to yourself, Jesus is more precious to me than anything. Jesus is more precious to me than anything. You can't give up. And other people get into this wilderness and instead of enduring, instead of seeing it as the hand of God, they say, well, God can't be in this. It's too tough. It's too hard. God can't be here. I don't even feel God. And God says, that's exactly where I'm working right now in your life. Even though you can't feel, feel it, even though you can't necessarily see it, he's still at work in your life. And you've got to trust him. Listen, God takes people through the wilderness over and over and over again. Is that where you're at right now? Maybe he's taking you through a wilderness time. We close with this. Notice this, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. In highway making, if you can imagine in those days, they didn't have the big bulldozers we have. They didn't have the huge earth-moving machines. They had human power, get out there with some shovels, some hand saws, clear the path. And that's what this messenger is doing. He's saying, cut down the trees. 
make the holes level, get rid of the shrubs, get a path ready. The king is coming. His focus here is Jesus. Prepare the way of the Lord. That's what he's called here, the Lord. Jesus-centered. I want to close with this. Sadly, John comes to arrest the attention, wake up Israel, and say, the time is now. And superficially, many receive the message. Many. In fact, when John was preaching, you can, it's like this, uh, it's like going to creation. Or, that's how I've envisioned this, you know, going to like some, some uh, uh, festival, Christian festival, and there, there's John the Baptist out in the field. He's preaching. There's this air of excitement. The Messiah, is, you mean he's right around the corner? He's coming. This is exciting stuff. People are like, yes! John's preaching, teaching. Many receive it, but on a superficial level. Didn't sink in. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, how many turned away? You have them all come in here to hear this messenger. You have them come in later as Jesus rides into Jerusalem in triumph. Yet many, 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 many thousands said no thanks. Why? Because it never affected their heart. The message, message that this person was preaching was a message that was designed not to just say, let's get excited the Messiah's coming. They had all sorts of pictures in their head of what the Messiah would look like. Reigning king, one who would deliver them from the political oppression of Rome. And John Mark now paints this picture of the Messiah's here. There is excitement in the air, but he's the suffering servant. And this suffering servant is so beautiful And so wonderful. And John Mark wants us to see that. He wants you to see it. He wants you to see it's worth following him. Oh, it's worth it. He died so you could know God. And there's nothing greater in this life than knowing God. Let's stand.